0: Uh, book of Judges, chapter 6. All right, praise the Lord. Now, um, we're going to continue with this series on spiritual warfare that we've been working through and uh, you'll remember last time I did speak now, which was some three weeks ago or more, um, we considered um, uh, how God left those nations to test Israel and to teach them to know war and how they actually failed the test because the Bible says that that they ended up intermarrying with the, the nations and, and then served their gods. And, that, you know, and, um, and I think about the tragedy of that in the book of Judges because in the book of Judges we have what we, we looked at was the third generation. And we saw the result of that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the book of Judges. And throughout the book of Judges again there's many lessons that relate to the issue of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is a reality. It's happening. You know, I know sometimes we can over-spiritualize things. But don't under-spiritualize things either. There is a reality of spiritual warfare that's going on in our midst, in our lives. We'd be fools not to identify and not to recognize those realities. And so, Lord, give us discernment to know and to know what we ought to do in those times. But here we have the book of Judges. And when you look at the book of Judges, what you see is a, if you want to call it a bit of a, if we were to draw it, it goes like this, (laughs) right? And so, The reason being it's called the book of Judges is Israel, at this point in time, has no king. Because God was their king, as the scripture tells us. But they were not obeying the king. And as God had foretold them and warned them prophetically and through Moses, and even having sent prophets at this point in time as well, God was telling them of their need to obey him. And so if they weren't, then the consequence of that was going to be that they found themselves in a place where those nations that were in amongst them and around them would begin to ascend and, have, and prevail over them and, and begin to uh, dominate and ultimately oppress them. Now, they didn't think that they were going to end up there. When they, when they made their choices to disobey God and serve the false gods, at the time, I'm sure they thought, this is liberty. This is freedom. But the wages of sin is always death. And, uh, and uh, always, uh, he who sins is a slave to sin. And so it always ends up in bondage. It always ends up in oppression. Oppression. And this is the pattern that we begin to identify in the children of Israel as the result of their disobedience. And so here they have, they disobey God. Then they go into a, a, a period of, of oppression under the regime of those nations. Uh, and um, this is not what God has intended, but this is the result of their sin. And then what happens is they get humbled before the Lord. And then they cry out to God in repentance. And then God raises up a deliverer. And that deliverer becomes the judge, so to speak, and hence judges. Then there's a number of them throughout the book. And so this, but again, the sad reality is, is this is the pattern. This is the, the nature of what's going on. And it, it really encapsulates Israel's history. And even up until now, it still characterises the nation. But you see, we're not looking at Israel. We're looking at us. And as we've said, these things are written for our admonition, for our example, because the truth is, is that's what we're like. And that is the characteristic of the Christian. And uh, if, we, if we disobey God and compromise, at the, at the moment we, don't, we think it's all hunky-dory, but we will reap what we sow. And uh, in doing so, then the enemy will gain an ascendancy in our lives and, and in the midst of the spiritual warfare and the battle, We'll find ourselves coming under oppression and coming into and things in our lives uh, uh, playing themselves out in such a way that we bear those consequences as a result of our disobedience to God. And so, thank God that God can still work and does work in those situations and circumstances. But you see, we want to look at the story of Gideon this morning, and we want to see the deliverer that God did raise up and what that teaches us about the Christian life and what it teaches us about spiritual warfare. Because when we look at Gideon, we, just, we see a, a truth that surrounds uh, that whole situation with Israel and Gideon that teaches us something, and it shows us too about how we can be a Gideon and what it means for us as Christians to identify with that as we will look at the story this morning. Now we're going to be looking at uh, uh, covering a larger portion of text which will be chapter six, aspects of chapter 6 and aspects of chapter 7. Now I'm not going to read that as a whole. But we will go through, as I preach this morning, we will go through various aspects of both chapters that are relevant to what we are talking about, that will give us and set the tone and scene for us to understand what we're considering. And so I want you to stick with me and uh, as we look at the story of Gideon this morning and uh, and see the reality of the circumstances of the children of Israel. And so in in chapter 6, verse 1, what we begin to realise and identify is that Israel has already come out of a period of, some, of, of oppression. And God has already raised up various deliverers. And so in, getting, in things getting things right with God, they had a period of rest for 40 years, it says, just prior in chapter 5, if you can see it there. But look at verse 1 of chapter 6. It says then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for 7 years and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites the children of Israel made for themselves the dens and the caves and the strongholds which are now in the mountains and so here is the sad reality this morning. Here is Israel having come into the promised land with the promise of a full inheritance of riches, of freedom, of um, just absolute blessing that God was going to pour out and bestow upon them. And here we have them uh, in a place of, uh, the Bible says, oppression. For seven years, they, um, they, the Bible says that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And there's a consequence God delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Seven years. This was part of the God's chastisement. In later in the book you'll see that uh, it becomes longer when they disobey God and continue in disobedience. The consequences become harsher in some instances. And so for seven years now, and this is the sad reality they find themselves in, and Midian now is prevailing over This says, the hand of the Midians prevailed against Israel. This was never what God had intended. It was meant to be the other way around. And yet now it's the opposite. And more than that, they have gotten to a point where they have, uh, for their own safety and in their own fear, they have made for themselves dens and caves and strongholds that they're hiding in. Isn't that sad? At the beginning, I reckon they were dancing around in the fields thinking, hey, praise the Lord, God's good. And then within seven years, they've dug out caves and, and dens and strongholds and they're hiding in them for fear of their lives and because of what the Lord has brought upon them. In verse 3, you see also not just the Midianites, but who else is in there? The Amalekites. The Amalekites. <laughs> Remember we looked at the Amalekites? And here they are. They're taking their opportunity, as the, as the devil does through the flesh, to, um, to bring oppression and, um, and, and bondage to the children of Israel. And so this is their situation. Let's look a little bit further uh, in relation to the consequences that thereof. Look at verse 6. It says, So Israel... Was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And then the children of Israel cried to the Lord. Now, note note here again the children of Israel were greatly impoverished. Think of the consequences. They've been stripped, they've lost so much. They've lost. Everything, in a certain sense, they're they're impoverished, not just spiritually but physically as a nation. They're oppressed. They built they, they're planting seed and the wheat, and you see later in the story that when it comes time and the, the seed is is ready to be harvested, the enemy comes in and just takes it and steals it from them. They're oppressed, and they're impoverished. I didn't think they were going to end up at this point. They weren't planning on ending up at this place, but that's what happens when we disobey God. It takes us to places that we didn't tend to go, where we didn't think we'd end up. But this is the nature of what we're dealing with. And so here it is, they are impoverished because of the oppression. And listen to what it says. Then the children of Israel cried to the Lord. You see, this is human nature. This is what we are like, church. It's not until things get to a certain point in our lives, until we are impoverished, until we bear the consequences of our disobedience to God, and then all of a sudden we realise how wrong we have been, what we have done, and we are so humbled now before God that only now we are willing to cry out to Him. That's, That's what we're like. That is human nature. You see, it's not at the beginning when everything seems to be okay, when everything seems to be working out, when everyone seems to be having a good time. It's later when they're impoverished and they're bearing now those consequences, then they cried to God. Because they realize and they come to the realization what have we done? What have I done? And then they see the consequences, they see the oppression, and then they're humbled before the Lord and they say, You know what? Remember when we disobeyed God, remember when we made those choices and those decisions to reject Him and turned our back on Him. And then now here we are years later and we are crying out to God, God, help me, God, help us, God, deliver us. Lord, we're so sorry. And this is, this is the, the pathway to in, in terms of repentance and getting it right with God. And so thank God for his mercy. God, in the midst of this, as they cried out to him, God sends them a prophet. And that prophet comes to the children of Israel. And look at what he says to them um, uh, in verse 8. And the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt, I bought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out from before you, and I gave you their land. And I said, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites. In other words, don't 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 serve them in whose hand you dwell sorry in whose land you dwell but you have not obeyed my voice god is saying you know what, i've what i look at what i've done for you look at what i did for you look at how i blessed you look at everything that i've accomplished on your behalf and yet here you are now crying out because you did not obey the voice of the lord and so Thank God this morning that, in light of such tragic circumstances, in light of such realities, that God this morning is merciful. Thank God that He hears our cries. Amen. Thank God that, even in the midst of that, we don't deserve His mercy, but God is faithful, God is merciful, God is gracious. And even in the midst of our humility and when we our brokenness, when we cry out to God and say, Lord, look at what I've done, God hears our voice. And in end, He will act, hallelujah, on our behalf. And where the enemy has gained the ascendancy, where the enemy has now brought us into bondage, where the enemy is now oppressing our lives, may, amen, God can bring and does bring deliverance, hallelujah. And can set us free. That's why the Christian life is a marathon. Amen? It's not something, it's not a sprint, because what we're dealing with has these aspects that are associated with it. And you realize this as you serve God for any length of time. But I want to look at Gideon this morning. and I want you to bear with me. And I don't know what the time is. I won't go over time. But we need to hear the word of the Lord this morning. So I want to look at Gideon, because Gideon is the deliverer that God raises up. Let's pray. Father, I just ask, the Lord, that you'd bless your word this morning. God, that you would surely, God, speak to us. Lord, that you would open our understanding. We would heed the word, understand the truths. Lord, and I pray that they would be received deep into our hearts that we would hear your voice from heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen. So here is Gideon. And the Bible tells us that Gideon is literally hiding. In verse 11, the angel of the Lord appears. And again... Every time in the Old Testament when we find this expression, this is a Christophany or a Theophany. It's a God, it's a manifestation of God and the incarnate Christ in the sense so he's appearing to the angel of the Lord himself appears. And he appears to Gideon. And the Bible says that Gideon is threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. In other words, he's, he's living in fear because he knows if they if they see the wheat and that the threshing of the wheat, then they're just going to come in and just take it. So he's now, you know, he's hiding and he's in this in the wine press and he's threshing wheat in the wine press of all places. But you know what? He has to do this, he has to go to these extremes because of the circumstances that they are in. But here God appears to Gideon in this place. And listen to what God says to him in verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon, you're the mighty man of valor. And he makes this declaration this word means mighty warrior. Mighty warrior. You know, I put a little side side note here, and uh, I thought I'd share it with you because everyone mocks me about my name, Gary. Not everyone, but most people. But you know, uh, as we all do, you look up the name. What does you know, Gary mean? It means mighty warrior. Uh, I said, Lord, I'll take that. Might sound like a wimp, but it means a lot more. <laughs> it means a spearman, a mighty, mighty hunt, uh, uh, a mighty warrior. That's what the it means. And where it comes from, the spear. And so, yeah, I know some are saying, yep, yeah, that's what he's like. <laughs> but anyway, back to Gideon, not Gary, okay? But God says to Gideon, You're the, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, Gideon's response gives us insight into his own thoughts about himself. Because he doesn't say, oh yeah, yeah, that's right, you bet, I'm the mighty man, I'm the mighty warrior. Now Gideon's response is quite the opposite, in fact. Gideon's like, what is going on? And uh, he is overwhelmed by the situation. And as God begins and continues to speak in verse 14, it says, then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. And so Gideon is like, wait, wait a minute, you've got the wrong man. <laughs> Hello, you, you've just visited the wrong person. <laughs> and so Gideon begins to respond to the Lord in verse 15. Look what he says. He says to the angel of the Lord, Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Miss Manasseh, his tribe, and I am the least of my father's household. Do you know who you have appeared to? I'm from the clan of Manasseh, I'm a I'm of tribe of Manasseh, mine is the weakest clan in Manasseh, and in my own family, I'm the weakest of them all. And you're coming to me and declaring that I'm a mighty man of valour? Like, something's not connecting here, Gideon is is obviously saying. And so, Gideon is gripped by a sense of inadequacy. He's gripped by an insecurity. And he's certain, Lord, you've got the wrong person. You see, what did God see in Gideon that Gideon did not see in himself? What did God see in Gideon that Gideon did not see in himself? See, when God saw Gideon, he saw him not for the man that he was, but for the man he would be if he yielded himself fully to God. Now think about that for a moment. When God saw Gideon, he saw him not for the man that he was, But for the man that he would be if he yielded himself fully to God. Now, in light of that, let me say this to us this morning. Does not the same apply to you and I in Christ Jesus? Who are we to be a mighty warrior? Who are we to be used of the Lord in spiritual warfare? Who am I to yield such power and authority in Christ but you see, this is what the scripture tells us that in Christ Jesus, you and I are characterized in the same manner as Gideon. We are mighty men of valor. And when I say men, I mean women too, okay? I'm speaking in the context of humanity and us being in Christ. Listen to verse, uh, sorry, listen to First Corinthians. And you know the scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And you have in verse 26. Let's read it. It says, For you see your calling, brethren. There's not many wise according to the flesh. Not many wise, uh, sorry, not many mighty. No, we're not mighty. Not many people noble are called. Verse 27 But God has chosen the foolish things of the world, to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world, to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world, and uh, uh, and the, the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are, listen, but of him who are in Christ, Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, that it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. We're like Gideon. We are from the weakest tribe, the weakest clan, and we're the weakest in our family. We are nobodies, literally. But in Christ Jesus, we are somebody, amen? Amen. In Christ Jesus, we are mighty men of valour. And we are in Christ. He has become unto us. He has given us and imputed to us his wisdom, his righteousness, and he has become all things to us. And so we have authority in him. That's why we can exercise dominion and power and authority. Because it's what God has done. We're mighty men of valor, and so this is really—it's significant that we understand this. This is part of our identity in Christ, who we are. You might say, oh, "You don't know who I am." According to the natural, we're all the same folk. When I mean, let's be honest, and yet in Christ, we're kings and priests. In Christ, Amen. We we are. Uh, um, We are soldiers of the army of the Lord. In Christ, we have been uh, um, declared in him to have uh, have dominion and authority in his name. And that's why faith is important in this process. Because if you're going to be the mighty men of valour that God has called you and I to be, then we're going to have to believe what God has said about us. Amen? That's why in Hebrews 11, it talks about Gideon in the the Hall of faith, uh, Faith, and it refers to Gideon. And in fact, let me read it to you in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. It says, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, also of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. Listen, who... Through faith, who through faith subdued kingdoms and worked righteousness, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions. And it says, in verse, quench the violence of fire, escape the edge of the sword, out of weakness, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant, became mighty in battle. Turn to fight the armies of the aliens. And we're not fighting in flesh and blood, but we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We are in a war and we are in a battle and we are called to fight. And God says, you are mighty men of valour. And we're like, who are you talking to, me? Do you know who I am? But God knows who you are and he knows in Christ who you are. And when you know who you are in Christ, you can begin to exercise this disposition and attitude. Now, this is not kingdom now nonsense. I'm not talking about this church triumphant stuff that goes out there. Remember, any truth gets taken to an extreme becomes an error. I'm just talking about your personal dominion in your life. This is critical. Faith is required. You know, Gideon, at this point of time, is not the most faith-filled man. If you know the story of Gideon, and we don't have time to go through it, but if you read it in your own time, Gideon was not like, oh, yes, Lord, let's do this. God had to go through or take through Gideon a process, and that process developed Gideon's faith. He grew, and he went from faith to faith. And as he grew in his faith, he became convinced, and then he understood, yes, I am a mighty warrior. I am a mighty man of valour. But you read the process of that. It wasn't automatic. Read the story of Gideon and you'll begin to see there were things that God had to take him through in order to build up his faith and confidence. But God is patient. And that's what he does with us. But he confirms these things in us until they are established and then we too can become that mighty man of valour that the Lord declares us to be. So this brings us to the next part of the, story, uh, the message I want to share with you, is that Gideon, and again can't go through all the details here, so I have to handpick a few things. But here's Gideon has been chosen, he's obeyed the Lord, and then now God is going to bring deliverance to, the, to, to Israel through Gideon and the army. And so, so anyway, Gideon calls together an army, and if you work it out, there's. Uh, about 32,000 people that come together, okay? And they said, yep, we'll fight with you, Gideon. And then God stops it, and he says, Gideon, now, you've got to understand this, if you work it out, there's about, their armies together is about 400,000. And they've got 32,000 that have come together to fight. And God says to Gideon, Gideon, there's too many people. If they get a victory even based on this many people, they'll take the glory for themselves, and so there's too many people. So he goes through a process in sifting those who are going to be used and prepared for the battle. And he goes through a process. So Gideon says uh, up front, the Lord directs him and says, those who are afraid and are fearful, you can go home. Now how many do you think went home? Well, I'll tell you, 22,000 went home. 22,000 said, you know what, I'm afraid and I'm fearful, I'll go home. And so God sifted those 22,000 out because you can't fight in the battles of the Lord if you're, if you're filled with fear. Fear is the enemy of faith. And so how can you conquer? So here it is, they, this 22,000 are removed. And then God says to Gideon, you know what? There's still too many. <laughs> there's twelve thousand against four hundred thousand. Mm, that's too much. So what he does is he 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 puts he provides a test. And so he he says to Gideon, "What I want you to do, I want you to take the people down to the water, and uh, and let them have a drink. And I'm going to give them a test there at the water." So he takes them to the water. Obviously they're very thirsty for whatever reason. And so all of a sudden you get the people there, and they're at the waters, and there's a God tells him how he's going to distinguish between them. And so there's a whole group of people that get on their knees on the water. They're obviously very thirsty. And so they, they get on their knees and they start lapping the water like a dog. Okay, <laughs> I, I know I'm exaggerating. But I'm illustrating. I have a tendency to do that. And so that's what they're doing. And then you have another group of people that get down on one knee and they get the water in their hand like that. And God says, I want you to take those other ones get rid of them. (laughs) And you know how many people there were that lapped the water in that manner? 300. 300. And God says, that's the ones I'm going to use. And again, it tells us this morning, even in spiritual warfare, you have to be spiritually fit to fight. The Bible says that we have to be vessels of honour, meet for the master's use. See, that's the problem even with so many Christians. We, we're not even in a position to fight. Let alone, okay, fearful and afraid, 22,000 gone, but then there's another uh, whole contingent that are gone because they're, just, they're not prepared for the battle. And this is how it is in the Christian life. This is what makes good churches. You know, in any good church, you'll always have that core, that spiritual core that hold that church and, uh, together. And, um, uh, and, you know, they're the ones that are in the prayer meetings. They're the ones that are fighting. They're the ones that are battling it through. They're the ones that are looking for spiritual breakthrough. Lord, and they're out interceding and they're out praying. While the others, well, who knows what they're doing. Sometimes... This, you can't make a prayer I get it. But I want to encourage you, if you can, then join with us in prayer. Because there's something about prayer. This is where the battle is engaged. If we're not, if we're not as one man said, if we're not praying, we're playing. If we're not praying, we are playing. So, you have this whole process that God takes them through, and he narrows it down to 300 people. And now you think to yourself, okay, 300, obviously if, if there's, God's going to do a miracle, and God's going to get the glory out of this, because 300 people against all this, thousands, hundreds of thousands even. But I want to draw your attention now to the battle itself, and the truth that it contains. Because in chapter 7, after God makes another confirmation, which becomes the final confirmation for Gideon, that he is now ready and declares in faith, yep, I'm ready, I'm the mighty man of valor, let's go, let's fight. But God gives Gideon a strategy. And this strategy is quite unique, really, and revealing. And again, it contains spiritual truth. But there's something that God instructs, and this is what Gideon implements. And look at verse 16 of chapter 7. The Bible says, Then Gideon, he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers." Now think about that. So here it is, this is the army. He says, in one hand, you're going to carry a trumpet, and in the other hand, you're going to carry a pitcher or an earthen vessel. And inside that earthen vessel is a light, or a torch, or, a lamp or you know, of lamp, some, of some, but it's concealed by the pitcher, by the vessel. And he says, you're going to carry this in one hand, and a trumpet in the other hand. Then you think to yourself, well, like, that. we're going to go out and fight like that? Like, where's the sword? At least a sword in one hand. But there's not even a sword that's mentioned here. And so what's going on? Let's look at verse 17. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet... I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Now again, isn't it interesting that they were to do this? So here they are when, on, on his command, when, they, when he blows the trumpet, they are to... Uh, um, to, to, to make a declaration, to shout. And they are to say the words, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Now again, they are to speak this forth. This is obviously, again, this relates to the issue of faith. I believed and therefore I spoke. This is something about faith. Again, where it is manifested by those words that we speak and in, in the context of, of faith and trusting God. But again, we're looking at this aspect of um, they declaring and speaking forth the sword of the Lord. What is the sword of the Lord? The sword of the Lord, ultimately, we understand, is the word of God. Again, the word of the Lord. That's why it's being declared. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon being his servant and being used of God in this moment. And so, this is exactly... What happens? Now look at verse 20. I want to show you further what happens. Then the three companies, verse 20, blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers or broke the earthen vessels. So they shouted the sword of the Lord and of Gideon and, at, and, and following Gideon's lead, they blew the trumpet then they broke the earthen vessel and the lights all went on at once. In the midst of the camp. This is what's happening. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, And they held the torches in their left hands. And the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Actually it was the other way around. <laughs> and every man stood. Look at verse 21. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. And the whole army ran and cried out and fled. Verse 22: When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Acacia, towards Zerah, and as far as the border of Abel, Moab, and Tabith. But in other words, <laughs> yeah, I know, just get through it quickly. In other words, as they. Did this, it sent shock. It sent panic amongst the armies that were there. And they didn't know what was going on. And the Bible says that the Lord turned them against each other, and in a frenzy, they all got their swords out and they all start killing each other. That's what happened to the point where, and then as they, as they continued to blow the trumpets and to shout and everyone was in a panic and a state of disarray, uh, they all started killing each other and then they retreated and Israel gained a decisive victory. And so again, God brought a wonderful deliverance for the children of Israel. Here they were oppressed, afflicted, and now here they are, Having a glorious victory as a nation. And this is what God can do for us this morning. You see, what God has done for Israel, what God has done through Gideon, that's what God does for us. That's what God does through us. That's what God does in us. And together with the Lord, amen, we're Gideons. We can unite together through the power of his might. And we can have decisive victory. We can be delivered. We can overcome. Amen. Because greater is he who is in me than he that is in the world. And so you begin to identify how this works and what it is that's happening. But I want to turn your attention further to the trumpets and the pitchers or the, the earthen vessels that we see here in the scripture. And let's look at what each one teaches us, because there's rich spiritual truth that surrounds this. Because these were the, what were use, These two elements, aspects, or three: the 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 the, um, the trumpet, the the earthen vessel, and the torch, or the light, the lamp. These three things were used by God to bring about victory. And so again, well, what the, what's the Lord showing us? What's He teaching us? Now again, we've looked at trumpets, haven't we? When we look to Jericho, we understand there that the children of Israel, uh, on their first battle, as they come into the Promised Land, they come to this fortified city. And God says, you're not even going to have to lift a finger. I'm going to do it all. And then he gets them to walk around the city once every day for seven days. And on the seventh day, they walk around seven times. And at the end of that, what happens? They blow the trumpets. The priests blow the trumpets, the ram's horns. And the people shout with a great shout. And the wall comes tumbling down. Because this trumpet is the trumpet of the Lord, amen. It is the trumpet of victory. It's the trumpet of war. It's the trumpet of power. It's the trumpet of authority. It's the praise and worship of God's people as we have established. In Numbers chapter 10 verse 9, let me read it to you again. When you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets. The alarm with the trumpets. That's what's going on right here. They're blowing it. The alarm is going off. And the the whole armies of Midian and the Amalekites and those are are, are going to a, a state of panic. And then it says, You shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. You see, the ram's horn teaches us about the power of God being unleashed in our circumstances. Hallelujah. And it's the shout of a king, as the Bible tells us, is in our midst. And when we shout with a great shout, it's a shout of faith. It's a shout of, 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 of confidence and of assurance and in God because when we speak the word of God, when we speak with, with that authority in Christ of who we are and what the scripture says and what the word of God says, as we rejoice in the Lord and identify with that, then again we gain the ascendancy through Christ and in Christ. But let's turn, having touched upon that, won't dwell on it, but let's turn to this issue of the, the other hand that, that carried the pitcher or the earthen vessel and the torch. And so there's, there's a truth here that we have to see this morning because if we are going to be, to be used of God, if we are going to be meet for the Master's use, if we're going to fulfil the destiny that God has for each of us, then the bible teaches us something with this about this earthen vessel because before the light could shine the earthen vessel had to be broken and so when we think of that this morning what we are seeing is god is telling us and teaching us the reality of brokenness before god this morning of us as individuals The Bible tells us that we are earthen vessels. But more than that, when you look at this truth of brokenness this morning, you see, we think that brokenness is sometimes the end. And it is. It's the end of ourselves. But not the end of God. That's where God gets started. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so the whole issue of brokenness is critical and central to the whole message of Scripture. And so we can look at this and we can make its application to Christ. You know, Christ had to be broken before he, could be, uh, before he was the Saviour and that he could redeem us to God. And that's why he took that last, at the supper, at the Passover, he took the bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. He said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. And so when we talk about brokenness and the way of brokenness in terms of the plan and purpose of God, brokenness is critical and it's found first and foremost in Christ himself because there's nothing that comes forth. And out of that brokenness comes, hallelujah, victory and power and Christ's resurrection Amen? And out of that comes victory. And then we see what has come forth, even today, even still, as a result of Christ's brokenness. The picture has to be broken before the light can shine. And this is, just doesn't apply to Christ. It's a principle that, of, God, of the kingdom of God, and it, we find its expression in Christ, because nothing, God does nothing in the way he deals with Israel and the way he deals with us, we first see it in the manner in which he has walked himself. And so when you look at Israel, we see here Israel. we were just been studying the book of Daniel and we were looking at the, how it applies and, uh, ex, uh, uh, to the, the nation of Israel, God's plan and purpose. And in the last chapter, as we were concluding, it says these words When the power of the people, the holy nation, the holy people is shattered shattered. God's going to break that vessel of Israel. And in their strength they have sought to appoint themselves and obtain the promises of God and that which is their inheritance. But you see, that's not going to come the manner in which they think it will. That's why they were looking for a saviour, not that it was one that was going to suffer and die and be broken. No, no, they were looking for a Messiah who was going to come and bring political power and deliverance and take up the throne of David as king. But they didn't understand the ways of God. And first it was the way of brokenness for the Lord and then his glorification. And in the same manner, when the power of the the holy people is shattered, when they come to a place of absolute brokenness for Israel in the tribulation, Jesus Christ will return And there will be a remnant that will be saved. And that remnant will go on to their inheritance in the millennium. And they will shine. The nation of Israel as ordained and promised by God. But do you see the pattern? It applies to Christ. It applies to Israel. And you know what? It applies to us. We're no different. There's not a different way, church. Church. This is how God works. And I say this morning that we need to understand this truth because one of the things that I have learned many times is the way of brokenness and how often God has to break us before we are a vessel, can we use of God? And even when you think you've got it together, still God, many times, he needs to break you again. This is the way that it works, because God must prevail. God must have his way in our life. He must humble us. He must bring us to the place of submission. He must bring us to the place of repentance. He must bring us to the place where we say, yes, Lord, you and you only... And so here it is. This vessel has to be broken. The Bible says, whoever falls on this stone will be broken. That's salvation. You know, this is one of the characteristics of of if if, if someone's going to be saved, this is one of the things that you want to see. You want to see a person broken over their sin. Because if you fall on that stone, you will be broken. Jesus said it. And I tell you, when I came to Christ... 30 years ago, I was a broken man. Sin had ravaged and I'd become impoverished as a result of my disobedience to God. At 18 years old, I'd been ripped to shreds. And I cried out to God in my brokenness. And the Lord saved me. And so this is the ways of God. And not only that, and then over a period of time and years, I had to go through the process like Israel. And I haven't fully arrived but it's the same pathway, over and over, and you always end up coming back to the cross, back to that place of brokenness. And there God comes forth in us. Because when that vessel is broken, then something glorious happens. And so I ask us this morning, what's What is in this vessel? Is it the word of God? Is Jesus Lord? Or are we filled with self? Are we filled with sin? Are we filled with with our own ways? As it says in the end of the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Are we living that way? Just doing what we want, when we want, how we want? Or are we saying, Lord, what is your will? Lord, what do you want me to do? Like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane after he agonised and wrestled and as if he sweat drops of blood, the Bible says. And he says, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Because you know the ways of God is always brokenness. It's surrender. It's not my will, but your will be done. And I tell you, if a Christian has never been broken, then you do not understand the gospel. You do not understand the ways of God. Because this is how God works. And this is is the fault of the modern church. They're trying to make people feel good all the time. They're always trying to say, no, we don't want you. We want to protect you from any source of sorrow. We don't want you to feel bad. We don't want you to be convicted. When God's trying to break you, when God's trying to break me, and yet we're trying to divert that and short-circuit it so often. Let God have his way because, you know, out of brokenness, that's where God breaks through. This is what God had to do to Israel. He had to break them and humble them. Not just once, but over and over. Paul the Apostle, when he saw Jesus... He was a broken man. He was knocked off that horse and he said the words, Lord, what do you want me to do? You see, I've made an emphasis of that earthen vessel and if if we're going to, to be a mighty man of valour and if we're going to be, gain the ascendancy in spiritual warfare in our lives, then we can't proceed on our own wisdom. We can't proceed in our own strength. We can't proceed in disobedience to God. And then that brings us to a point of brokenness. And in brokenness, out of that comes the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Out of that comes the power of God manifested. Out of that, God brings about glorious deliverance. And this is how the kingdom of God operates. And I want to just share with you before I conclude this morning, just a few examples of this. Because I want to just reiterate this point and drive it home. Brokenness. One man said that our, your, our victory rests with his victory over us. Now let me. I'll read. I'll read this testimony to give, to illustrate what I. What I mean by that. There's a man. I don't have his name here, but it says after telling, of his struggles for victory in his life, and of his disappointments, that after an outstanding experience in the presence of God during a time of prayer, he had failed to give, God victory, and glory. And he said. I have now come to see that the victorious life is not me conquering sin, but him conquering me and breaking me each time that sin comes in and takes me and taking me to the cross. In other words, we we, we see and understand sometimes the point. You know, yes, this is what I need to be in Christ. So we, we try, we resolve, I'm not going to do this. I mean, in our own strength, we're going to say, yes, I am, and I am. And it doesn't work like that, church. You know, as one man says, I can stand tall when I'm on my knees, meaning it's at that point of weakness that his strength is made perfect. And so, again, out of brokenness, this is where God comes forth. And so he realized this man's realized that when, when I fully surrendered to God and He conquered me in brokenness at the cross, when I when I I said I could, I can't do this, Lord, and it was that, that point when he conquered me and humbled me and broke me, then I entered into the glorious liberty and fullness and power and deliverance of God in my life. What I'm saying to some of you this morning sounds like I'm speaking a different language. But to those who know the ways of God, what I'm saying this morning resonates deep, deep in the heart. Because when God has his way with you, this is the pathway that he takes us on. Jim Simbala is the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. I remember years ago reading a book of his called Fresh Wind and Fresh Fire. And he testifies about his experience and how he took over a small church and how that church grew and multiplied. And today, many people have heard of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. And he, in his book, he writes and he acknowledges certain turning, critical landmark moments in his life and the church's life. And he talks about how God brought him to a point of absolute brokenness in himself. And as he experienced these realities in his life, he came to realise the ways of God. And he says these words which he spoke to his wife and shared to her as they reflected upon these things when they... Years later, when they saw what God had done amongst them and as they reflected back and looked at, what were the key moments? What were the key factors here that brought us to where we are today? This is what he said. He said, in fact, Carol and I told each other more than once that if the spirit of brokenness and calling on God ever slacks off in the Brooklyn tabernacle, we'll know we're in trouble, even if we have 10,000 in attendance. Are you hearing that this morning? If ever the spirit of brokenness and calling on God slacks off, we're in trouble. He learned a valuable lesson, and this is a lesson that every Christian has to learn. I have another quote here of a man named Peter Octavius. And he was used by God in Indonesia. And he saw a a move of God in, in Borneo. And as, again, these were his words. It is said that he did not preach... Sorry, well, about him. Sorry, it is said that he did not preach an easy message... It was claimed that he had no time for frills or gimmicks. And he made it clear that revivals do not begin happily. But with everyone and everyone having a good time, they start with a broken and contrite heart. Duncan Campbell was another revivalist preacher used in Scotland on the Isle of Lewis. And again, here his words. He says, They were men broken, broken before the Lord, giving themselves to prayer and seeking God diligently for the people. On the day that God came and revival broke out, men and women all over were broken before the Lord, confessing their sins. And calling upon the Lord. Every true move of God, every visitation from God, you know, when God comes, you fall down flat in brokenness. You know, you read it. There are many examples in Scripture. When Isaiah saw the Lord, woe, oh broken, woe is me, for I am undone. When God comes, you don't sing and dance in that sense, and jump up and down. I'm not, I've got nothing against the joy of the Lord. I've got nothing against the shout of victory and all of those things. There's context. But if this is missing. God is missing. Because this is the ways of God this morning. And when God comes and his presence is in our midst, we can't help but be exposed by that light. And the purpose of God in us is to prevail upon us, to break us. Why? Because he's some harsh taskmaster that just wants to dominate our life? No, because he loves us and he wants to bless us. He has so much for us. And in doing so, when we come to that place of surrender, when we cry out, when we humble ourselves and we're broken, and so say, Lord, I'm, I have sinned against you. Lord, I have done wrong. Lord, I'm not obeying you in this area of my life. I surrender and I turn and i begin to follow you wholeheartedly, all my heart. Then God, out of that, does miracles. And that's where you will have the breakthrough. Because at that point of brokenness and surrender, you know what you're going to do? You're gonna, that light will break forth. You will speak the sword of the Lord. You will speak the word of God and what God says and what God declares. And in doing so, the light shines. Hallelujah. And the enemy starts turning on each other because we gain. And as we shout, blow the trumpet in shout and victory and in praise to God, you know what? The enemy can't stand a chance. And that's got nothing to do with binding the devil, church. <laughs> Notice that. Because when we're in this state, the devil's bound. Hallelujah. And so my question to us this morning is, do you know anything of the brokenness of the Lord? Do you and I know anything of the brokenness of the Lord? You know, I have seen too many times, I've seen broken people. People are broken because they've made wrong choices. People are broken because they've, you know, they've they've reaped the consequences of sin in their lives. I've seen people that are broken. And the, one of the things that I've observed so many times is you share the gospel with them and they were, not bro- they were not broken before the Lord. And I say, why? Because you have to be broken before God. It's not just being broken. There's a lot of broken people out there. But we have to break before God. And in brokenness before God, this is where it all begins to stem from. And not just our salvation, but our usefulness to God for spiritual warfare and victory over sin and and other things in life that relate to this. You know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he said, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And just prior to that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 he talks about that the light of the gospel would shine into the hearts of men. And so when you and I are broken vessels, we're earthen vessels, we're leaky vessels too, and that's why we have to remain in place of brokenness before the Lord. But in doing that, the light shines brighter and brighter. And when we stand on the word of God, when we declare the word of God, when we preach the word of God, when we share the word of God, when we whatever it is, when we speak the word, our light shines. And so, in saying all of this this morning, as we've looked at spiritual warfare, we're looking at a key component that gives us pathway to victory. The trumpet, the pitcher or the, the, the earthen vessel and the torch, the light. And that vessel must break if we're going to have victory this morning. Do you, are you hearing what the Spirit is saying? Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your word, which is living... And powerful, sharper than a two edged sword, Lord, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. Oh God, we're naked before you, Lord. God, search our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would, God, break these vessels. Lord, the the pathway of brokenness is never easy. It's never pleasant. But God, there lies the secret to power. There lies the secret to victory. There lies, Lord, the place in which you are glorified because it's nothing of ourselves. It's all of you. And without you, we can do nothing. So, Lord, I pray that you take the truth this morning and you apply it to individual hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we have the musicians just come? Let's just take some time to just ponder and pray. And we're going to sing a song. You know, a time like this, you just can't shut the service down and just, you know, okay, let's get on. Have coffee, yeah, 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 yeah. How was the foodie on Friday? Yeah, great. We have to let this sink into our hearts. And I want you just to meditate this morning as we sing. And I want you just to allow God to deal with you. Do business with God. Pray. Call upon the Lord. It's a time. It's an altar. You can make an altar and just pray and call upon God. But let this be a moment. If God is dealing with you, let it be a moment for you this morning. We're going to sing that song all to Jesus, I Surrender.
1: To Jesus I surrender all.
0: God is good. He's faithful, church. And even when we're not, he's still faithful, the Bible says. Thank, you, Lord. Thank God for who he is. Where would we be without him? That's enough to cause us to break. <laughs> Where would I be without Jesus? Hallelujah. God bless you all this morning. And uh, let's enter in time of fellowship.